with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our series in 1 Peter, and again, we're focusing on these verses that are addressing husbands and wives. Today, we'll be focused on husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3, we have one verse, verse 7. This is God's word, authoritative, inspired, meant for our benefit today. We honor it today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Fear the Lord and enjoy unhindered prayer. I believe that's the main point today. And I must confess that as I approach this verse, I had this thought that no text of Scripture has encouraged me more in the fear of God than this one. What I mean by the fear of God or the fear of the Lord is not terror or dread of the Lord. It's a reverence for Him. A respect for God. A, a fear that loves Him. And acknowledges and recognizes he's the creator. He's my creator. It's a good fear. It's a fear that desires to honor him. To serve him. It's a humble stance. When a, when a person fears the Lord, they, they have a different worldview. They have a different perspective of the world around them. They see every moment of their life as the Lord's. It's His time. Every relationship is His. Every duty is a command from Him. And every blessing comes from His hand. Most well-known book of wisdom in the Bible, it's certainly not the only one, but the, probably the, the most well-known is the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. For true knowledge, for real wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the fundamental principle. Bruce Waltke, he's an Old Testament scholar, says what the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is is to attaining the re revealed knowledge of the book of Proverbs. 
It's, it's wisdom. It's the fundamental principle of wisdom. So advancing in wisdom requires more than brains or education or abilities. It, it requires humility before the Lord. And only those who fear the Lord will become wise. Only the humble are skillful in living in this world that God has created. Foolish people despise what wisdom would seek to teach them. Because their pride, they refuse to accept the Lord's instruction. And it sets them on the path of folly. And this doesn't bode well for them because God is the creator. And he's, con he's continually active in this world. The world is not driven by chance. Things don't happen by accident. There's a design to this world and there's a measure according to the wisdom of Scripture. There's, there's a measure of predictability because God created the heavens and the earth. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding He established the heavens. So we live in this world where there is consequences. There are acts and consequences. God's designed it that way. What's so uncanny about Proverbs is it was written centuries ago in a different culture to very different people, and yet it still rings true, doesn't it? You read through Proverbs and you go, wow, that is so accurate. You see it in the world, and this is why. Written into the very nature of the world is this relationship between what you do and how things turn out. There is cause and there is effect. The most prominent image in Proverbs is a path. It's the journey of life. There are two paths. There's a path of wisdom, a path of folly. There's a very clear end where these paths are going. But most importantly, the focus of the wisdom literature and scripture is about the quality of life you experience on these paths. So if you're a husband, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 is an important text for you. It's been a blessing to me because it has encouraged me to fear the Lord, to recognize He cares about the way I relate to my wife. This verse is amazing. A few years ago, about five years ago now, Sherry woke me up in the middle of the night. I had a bad cold. I had taken some Tylenol PM to get some sleep. In my defense, I was a little groggy. Irritated, though, that she woke me up saying she was having a heart attack. You dare wake the great and powerful Oz. That, that's what I always think of when I think of my reaction that night for some reason. I took her to the emergency room, but I was angry. I told her in no uncertain terms, you are definitely not having a heart attack. 
I'm going to take you to the emergency room just to prove it to you. So you can imagine how I felt when the doctor did some tests and looked at her and said, you're having a heart attack. Felt terrible. But you know, most of all, what I realized that night as I sat by myself in a little room waiting for information to come for hours was how I had not only sinned against Sherry, but maybe more importantly, I had sinned against the Lord. And he was not happy. <laughs> so the point of telling you that story is, if your wife wakes you up in the middle of the night, take her to the emergency room with bells on. So that your prayers won't be hindered. What does that mean? Our text is a warning passage. We want to take a close look at it. First Peter's all about the, the gospel of free grace. But we still want to heed these warning passages. This isn't the only one in the scriptures, is it? It means something. Let's try to figure out what that means. First, note that we said this last week when we talked about the role of the wife in marriage. We said submission is not just for wives. Because Peter says in verse 1, they're to be subject to their husbands. And we said submission is just not for wives. It's in the context of 1 Peter. We all have someone we're called to submit to. Submission is a Christian virtue. And in verse 7, Peter says, likewise, connecting it to the previous six verses and the context of 1 Peter, likewise, husband, submission is a Christian virtue. You are called to submit. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Why? Because you are called to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very clear in this text. It's not an independent paragraph. It's a corollary to the previous verses. It seems clear that Peter doesn't want any misunderstanding about what he said about the role of the wife. Isn't it? In case any of you husbands were reading this with a little spring in your step, I'm going to address you now. He, he, he only briefly addresses them, but it's, it's very powerful, very thorough, very comprehensive. He instructs these men, they should live with the same sense of Christ's lordship in their lives that their wives do. Their wives are subject to their husbands because Jesus is Lord in their lives. That's why they submit to their husbands. And in the same way, likewise husbands, you are to be subject to the Lord. The humility and the desire to honor the Lord that would encourage a wife to be gentle and quiet motivates a husband to be kind, to be considerate, responsible, faithful in building his home. Submission to the Lord means that a husband lives differently in his, in his house. And so Peter tells us 
how husbands are to live differently, but first he explains why. A husband lives differently in his home, number one, because his wife is a woman. His wife is a woman. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. A husband lives differently in his home because his wife is a woman. The word translated woman here is a rare word. It means the feminine one. Peter is after the, the nature of womanhood here. Biblical womanhood. What it means that God has made a woman. Femininity. And he sees in this a reason to honor this person. The feminine one should receive this special honor. Sometimes this can be a despised text too. But you misunderstand it if you do. This text and many others make it clear from a biblical perspective God created you a man or a woman. It's important because men and women are different. And you can't understand our text unless you understand this. Verse Genesis 1. Genesis 1. The first chapter in the Bible. God created man in his own image. Speaks to our purpose. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The truth is that God created humankind, male and female. He created you in his image, and he created you either a man or a woman. Your gender is by design, and it's for his glory. And this sets us in opposition to our culture. I mentioned a book Carl Truman had written recently. In the beginning of the book, he writes this, The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. That's why he wrote this book. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. And yet, he, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it's a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. I know that's a mouthful, but it's important. Mr. Truman was writing this before last year's presidential election and our new president took office. Less than a week in office, and President Biden, 
this week issued the executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. It's more relevant than it was when he wrote the book. This executive order means, for example, that any school that receives federal funding must allow biological boys who self-identify as girls on the girls' sports teams. What's that mean for women's sports? Well, Linda Blade, who's the Team USA Olympic track and field coach, said it, it means girls' sports are finished. They're done. All the benefits that this society has enjoyed from women's sports are over. She says that this executive order will result in unfairness, rigged comp competition. Why? Because she thinks the biological facts are indisputable. Women are the weaker vessel, is what she's saying. She didn't quote 1 Peter 3, but that's what she's saying. Abigail Schreier wrote a book, Irreversible Damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters. She says this, in contests of strength and speed, the athletic chasm between the sexes which opens at puberty is both permanent and unbridgeable. Once male puberty is complete, testosterone suppression doesn't undo the biological advantages men possess. Larger hearts, lungs, and bones, greater bone density, more oxygenated blood, more fast-twitch muscle fiber, and vastly greater muscle mass. In a complaint against the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, the Connecticut female runners cited the fact that the fastest female sprinter in the world is American runner Allison Felix, a woman with more gold medals than Usain Bolt, that guy that the fastest man. Her lifetime best for the 400-meter run is 49.26 seconds. Based on 2018 data, nearly 300 high school boys are faster. My point in telling you this is to help us see this, this is not, when we talk about gender, this is not debatable matters. Remember that? This is not a disputable matter or a matter of indifference. This is something we cannot avoid. I hope it encourages you that when we feel like there's a biblical mountain to die on, we will die on that mountain. And I think we might die on this mountain. Gender issues are clear. We're, we're not afraid of people. This isn't a phobia. We don't hate people. We would never harm anybody. We don't want to avoid them having civil rights in our country. That's not what this is about. What we're doing is what believers have always done. We're seeking to submit to the Word of God and apply it in our lives. And also we care about people. We want them on the path of wisdom and not on the path of folly. So we have to preach the truth. So that's why. So so then the question is, how? So husbands lives differently in his home because his wife is a woman. 
So what does that mean? What is the duty of a husband who's given leadership in the home and he, his wife is a woman? And so he's going to live differently. How? Two duties that we get from Peter in verse 7. Number one, a husband has the responsibility to live with his wife in an understanding way. To dwell with her according to knowledge. This is how the husband is to live with her. It's a command. He's not making a suggestion here. He's called to be considerate. He's given leadership, but it's a considerate leadership, a kind leadership, attentive to the needs of the home. This is the role assigned to him. And submission to the Lord Jesus Christ motivates him to do this. This is basic to his role. Live with your wives. Dwell with your wives. Make a home for them. Be thoughtful. Be under, understanding. He never tells them to submit to their wives. He's not interchanging the roles here. He's giving a vision for considerate leadership. This is how a husband leads. This is how he does it. According to knowledge, he gets actual knowledge and information. He has common sense. He has reason. He gets to know his wife. He learns biblical principles. It's a lot of work. He's going to provide direction. He's going to give insight. He's going to lead. He's going to take initiative. He's got a lot of work to do. He wants to understand his wife's desires, her goals, things that frustrate her, things that make her happy, things that serve her, that help her in her role, in her calling before the Lord, in her spiritual life. I mean, we could spend hours on this. My friend, C.J. Mahaney, he is the best husband I have ever met. He puts me to shame. He's written a book called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. If you want to be depressed for an afternoon, I encourage you to read it. Actually, it's a, it's, it's, it's a means of grace. He says this at one point in the book, as a romancer of my wife, I know that my essential role is that of a student and a planner. So I constantly keep my eyes and ears open for ideas to record. I've been known not to hear my name called at a doctor's office because I'm furiously scribbling information from a magazine article. And that is true. I can just see him doing this. Oh, he's got an idea, a thought. He's living with his wife, Carolyn, according to knowledge. And he's seen something in a magazine. And they're saying, Mr. Mahaney, Mr. Mahaney. And he's missing it because he's so engrossed in what he's doing. In that book, he, he tells a story about his little girl, Nicole. And it was his first child. And somebody came up to him and Carolyn. or standing there. I've heard him tell this a thousand times. Somebody comes up and says, points at the little baby Nicole and says, I bet she's the apple of your eye. He said, no, 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 no. Points to his wife, Carolyn. She's the apple of my eye. 
And that changed my life when I heard that. Because I love my kids. I get very excited about my kids. But that changed my life when I heard that 30 years ago. And I realized it just helped me appreciate my calling. That I'm to live with my wife according to knowledge. That's what the Lord is concerned about. It didn't harm my kids. I think this is what my kids like best about our home. A man's wife should be his highest priority. This is part of what it means to be living with our wives according to knowledge. The, the image that Peter gives us is these, this man and this woman, they're vessels. They're God's handiwork. And he has designed them. They're different. But it's, they complement one another. He has made them this way. He, he thought of them both as weak and he uses that weaker vessel. It's a comparative word. So it's comparing the two. They're both weak, but she's weaker. It's not derogatory. It doesn't in any way imply inferiority. It's so clear from the text if you read it. There's just no sense that the woman is inferior to the man. Christians think differently about weakness, don't we? The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That's the way Christians are. We think differently about weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. It's just a different paradigm. It's a different worldview, and it's how we interpret this verse. It affects us. Generally, women are physically weaker than men, but in no way is Peter implying she's intellectually or morally inferior to her husband. That's not what he means here. I mean, one of the things he means is, is physically, but also in her accepting the role we saw in verses 1 through 6, it just puts her in a weaker position. She's, she's more vulnerable. And so Peter is pointing that out and saying, live with your wife according to knowledge. I had so much encouragement from last week's message. Can you believe that? What an honor it is to be a pastor in this church. What an honor it is to pastor women in this church who would write me after that message just, I mean, powerful encouragement. And I hope every husband in this room is humbled by that. I hope you sense the fear of God and what a joy it is to honor a woman like that. Peter's telling these husbands, and instead of misusing their authority for selfish ends, they're supposed to use it to respect their wife and honor their wife, and serve their wives. And let me tell you, one of the reasons I got encouragement is because there's some happy wives in this room. Because they have good husbands. 
who are living with their wives like this. And their wives are happy. And they hear that text last week, that encourages them. But there is no place for harsh, selfish, domineering authority in a Christian home. Oh, that is wrong. Winston Smith is a biblical counselor. He's written some wonderful stuff on marriage. He says this, remember, you are merely a steward of God's authority and you are called to use it only for his goals and purposes. You are forbidden to exercise authority in your own self-interest. As you follow Jesus, expect your authority to be costly. Think about that. Exercising authority means laying aside your own welfare for the sake of others. Never make decisions out of convenience, vindictiveness, or other selfish motives. Make it your daily practice to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to help you examine your motives before you ever exercise authority. Amen. A second duty Peter gives on how to live in the home. He says to the husbands, they're to live differently. A second duty, a husband has the responsibility to assign honor to his wife. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, granting honor, assigning honor to your wife. He has a duty to honor his wife. Yet this text is a despised passage. It's misunderstood. Peter wants every husband to know your wife is worthy of respect and she should be highly esteemed. They, they weren't honored in that culture that he is writing in. For the most part, they were not honored. Peter's very aware of that. But God is so often pleased, isn't he, to honor those who aren't honored in the culture. (laughs) The Lord wants them honored. Christian husbands, now he he is not writing to men who are married to non-believers. He is writing to men who are married to Christians, obviously from the verse. That was different with the wives. But for these husbands, he's writing to them. They're married and their their wife is a Christian. And he wants them to honor their wives because they are fellow heirs, co-heirs of the grace of life. They've been converted. They're saved. They've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, reconciled to God. God has caused them, we read the verse this morning, to be born again. They've received unmerited favor from God. They've received real life, true life, spiritual life. And together, husband and wife, they share this gift. They know the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, their Lord. And because of that, the husband should honor and esteem his wife. One theologian said, recognition of this will end domestic tyranny. 
They have different roles. But they're a team, and their roles complement each other. It is beautiful. Christian marriage, biblical marriage, what we're reading about is absolutely a gift from God. It is, it is beautiful. In fact, on my heart are the, the folks that desire this. They see this. And they're not married, and they want to be married. And I'll tell you, man, I so respect you. I, I want you to know, meditate on this verse, think about these verses, because I am absolutely convinced the Lord wants to encourage you. Somehow, He wants you to leave today from this text and be strengthened in your faith. But we need to recognize this institution that is so attractive in this verse is under attack, isn't it? It's just everything about it is under attack. I met this week with Ben Landis and Jana Griffin. They're engaged. They're getting married in a couple weeks. It was really exciting. I love their families. I just thought about their families. The Landises and the Griffins. Man, families like that bless churches, don't they? <laughs> and here their two kids are getting married. And these are two young people that you... What was so striking to me, now I'm preparing this message, okay? So I'm thinking all about marriage, but what was so striking to me is they're not following the crowd. They're contemporaries. They are wow weird. Wow different. Wow swimming upstream. Wow a different worldview for that age. I so respect you. I want to encourage you. You look in our culture and men hate women and women hate men and there's just this polarization across the board. I am not going to do that. And, and Scripture is painting a picture here of men and women coming together in biblical marriage and it's, it's a beautiful, attractive thing and he wants to recover it. So that's the duty of the man. Not harsh, unattractive despicable leadership but a leadership that lives with his wife according to knowledge and honors and respects his wife in conclusion let's look at the warning how a man leads his home affects your life your spiritual life your relationship with the Lord Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's, it's cause and effect. The Lord is active in his world. He's active in your home. And, and certainly Peter didn't want us to leave today and think, if we're good moral people, then God will answer our prayers. That's not the point. First Peter is filled with the gospel. The good news about free grace God will accept us and hear our prayers by His grace alone. Our acceptance with God is based solely 
on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're prone to think we can earn God's favor and then he'll answer our prayers. That's not the point of this message. Not in this context of this letter. We will always be accepted for Christ's sake and only because of Christ. We can never be accepted without him. But we should heed this warning. Somehow we got to hold on to both of these. This is actually meant to be a means of grace in our lives. So we heed the warning knowing if God ever answers our prayer, it's only by the grace of God. But we heed this warning. Nevertheless, I want to live with my wife in an understanding way. And when I don't, I want to fear God. I want to know God's active in my family. And there's consequences. Your prayers are hindered. Peter assumed these men were praying. They're Christians. They have communion with God. Prayer, Calvin said, is the chief exercise of faith. And he's assuming these men of faith are praying men. When the gospel comes, faith and prayer is birthed. We see the beauty of Christ. And we have communion with him. And, and prayer is fundamental to our communion with God. We pray the gospel awakens faith and it awakens prayer. Through the gospel, Christ becomes our friend. He's a source of all blessings, happiness, contentment, joy. It's why I want to stand firm on gender issues. I don't believe the cultural worldview is going to end well. I want to preach about true joy, communion with the living God. Psalm 4, verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I meditate repeatedly on Psalm 61 through 63. I call when my heart is faint. He's a strong tower, a rock that's higher than I am. He's a refuge, a fortress, a mighty rock. I pour out my heart to him alone. Salvation come from him, power come from him, steadfast love belong to him. His love is better than life. My soul is satisfied with him. I remember him, I meditate on him, I think about him. He's been my help. My soul clings to him. And his right hand upholds me. And when you tell me that's going to be hindered, I pay attention. John Piper says, you don't want your prayers to be hindered. Because when your prayers are hindered, it means you're not connecting with God. And that God himself starts to seem distant and unreal. For a person who has known God and loved him, and tasted the sweetness of peace and fellowship, in a sense of being right with God, nothing is more terrifying than the growing feeling that God does not seem to be there anymore. And that's why when I have a conflict with Sherry, I'm ready to just get down on my hands and knees and kiss her foot and say, I'll do whatever you take, whatever you take. 
I'm kidding to some degree, but hindering of prayers is God's fatherly discipline. And he does it because he loves us. Father, we pray today, draw us close to you, Lord. Thank you for your word. I pray for every single adult who desires to be married and isn't. I pray for every husband and every wife in this room. I pray for every member of this congregation. I pray for the guests. I pray for the folks watching via live stream. And I pray today you would encourage the fear of the Lord. Lord, lead us to the path of wisdom. We need your help today. In Jesus' name, amen.